0: What if you could get really good grief support for just $3 a month? If you're navigating life after loss, but are a little tight in the money department, consider becoming a patron of Coming Back on Patreon. Listeners who support this podcast on Patreon receive weekly grief journaling prompts released every Monday morning and a once a month private grief hangout with me. If you're looking for an easy, inexpensive way to stay in touch with your grief, become a patron now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Your monthly pledge helps me keep this podcast on the air and allows me to produce online courses, books, and very special grief experiences for grievers just like you. Get started now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening. Hey there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm talking to Jana De Cristofaro from the Dougie Center about children's grief and how we can support the kids around us who are grieving, whether we have kids of our own or not. We're discussing why repeating the facts of what happened is often really necessary for kids— why you might consider making a scrapbook or written story of a child's grief, and why we really need to stop the cinematic stories of grieving kids as broken, or conversely, orphaned kids as extraordinary superheroes. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss my mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief. And I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there grief growers and welcome to season eight of coming back. This old girl is still going strong. Thank you so much for joining me today. First and foremost, I want to give a huge and tremendous thank you to everyone who has ever listened to Coming Back through the years. Just yesterday on New Year's Eve 2019, Coming Back crossed 100,000 downloads, which means this grief-affirming show has reached people who need to hear it 100,000 times. I am so incredibly honored to continue to hold and share space and these stories and these tools and this wisdom with you. I am just so floored sometimes that I can talk here and it reaches you there. So thank you grief growers for helping me reach 100,000 people who really need to hear this work second of all grief growers, I am so honored to welcome my very first batch of students into my 12 week online course Life After Loss Academy. I had so much fun over the break logging on and talking about this course with you live, and sharing how I learned to feel safe again, practice stitching the perfect griever, and release the hopes, dreams and expectations that I used to have for my life before the loss of my mother in 2013. It was really especially powerful for so many of you to join me on December 26. My mom Death Aversary. So, thank you very much for joining me for that live broadcast. And if you'd like to see a replay of that, it is up and available for you on my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia Intuitive Grief Guide, and I've also cross posted it to YouTube as well. So, if you search Shelby for Scythia, it should be one of the more uh, recent videos that's been posted there. If you'd like to see it again, there's a lot of cool, helpful tools and resources in there. I will say that Life After Loss Academy is closed to new students as of today, but based on how this course goes and the feedback I receive from the gravers who are in it right now, uh, I may be running it again. So stay tuned, stay tuned. Lastly, grief growers, before we get to the interview today, I want to unveil a very special new project I'm working on. And I get chills already (laughs) talking about this. So I am so stoked to bring this your way. And the project is this. It's a book about how grief impacts our friendships. So many of you have written me or shared stories in the private Facebook group, The Grief Grower's Garden, about coworkers or longtime friends or neighbors interacting with you differently because of the loss that you have faced. So if you're in a friendship that changed or grew awkward, or even ended because of grief, I would really, really love to hear your story. Please go to shelbyforsythia.com friends and fill out the form there. Your story might be published in my next book on grief and friendship. And of course, as we all know here on Coming Back, sharing our stories is what helps others feel safe safe sharing theirs. And my ultimate goal with this book is that it will help grievers who are struggling with feeling abandoned or left out or even emotionally attacked by friends start meaningful and important and powerful conversations about how grief has changed their friendships. Again, if you're interested in helping me with this next big project on grief and friendships, I would love to have your story. Please go to shelbyforsythia.com slash friends to share your story with me today. And you can also find that link in the show notes as well. Let's get to the interview. Janita Cristofaro is the Community Response Program Coordinator at the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Started in 1982, the Dougie Center was the first peer support program for grieving children. On staff for the past 17 years, Jana coordinates grief support groups for children, teens, and young adults. She is also the host and producer of the Grief Out Loud podcast and stepparent to Captain the Boston Terrier. Grief growers, I am so delighted to have Janita Cristofaro on the show with me today because her podcast formerly, uh, well, remind me, Jana. What was it called before "Grief Out Loud"? Uh, we originally started
1: with the name "Dear Dougie" because we imagined that's right it being sort of a question and answer. But we quickly moved into having so much content and people we wanted to interview, so we changed the name to be a little bit more, you know, representative of what we're trying to accomplish with the show.
0: I love it. So grief growers, I listened to Jana De podcast way back in the day when it was Dear Dougie. And now the name has been changed to grief out loud. And it is just a phenomenal resource, not only for grieving children and their families, but people who are grieving all over the world. So Jana, welcome to coming back. I'm so excited to have you here. And uh, let's start off with your lost story.
1: Well, this is always a hard question because there's lots of them to choose from at this point in my life. Um, I would say when I first came into the world of working with grieving children, uh, the stories I carried with me were the death of both of my grandparents. When I was in high school, my grandmother was hit and killed by a subway train and we never found out if it was suicide or an accident or somebody had pushed her. And she died less than a year after my grandfather had died of cancer. So that was a story that was really formative for me in my rest of my high school and college life. Um, But since working at the Dougie Center, I've had a few friends die. And most recently, uh, my friend Iden died uh, from a brain tumor. She died just a little over two weeks ago.
0: I wonder the first question that's springing to my mind and something that I think a lot of grievers ask themselves is, do you ever get used to grief or death? in your life? Has it assimilated as a part of your life? Or is it always surprising when it happens?
1: I think yes, is the answer to both of those, those options in that, (laughs) in that every experience is so different. Uh, And so I think, after working in the grief world for 17 years, I haven't an understanding of what could be part of the equation, but I'll never know exactly which elements are going to show up in this specific equation. So yes and no to like getting used to, I think it's more getting familiar with how grief can show up. Also holding close to the idea that as different people in my life die, I really have no idea what it's going to feel like. And if there's going to be even elements I'm not currently aware of that are going to be part of that equation eventually.
0: I love that you use the word equation because I'm thinking of like in middle or high school when you learn PEMDAS, where it's like parentheses, whatever it is, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, like that's the order that you do long form equations in. And you spoke to this notion of like, I've got, you know, pieces of the equation that could show up with this particular grief, but then there's other things that could show up that I'm not expecting. Like, what if we did the square root of it? or squared the number, or put the whole thing over x, then what would happen? Um, And it's, it speaks to this, I love that you use the word familiar to this familiar and yet unpredictable nature of grief. And so much of the work that you do is with kids who over and over and over again, we're told crave stability and routine and kind of a foundational roots in the ground. And so I'm wondering kind of in your 17 years of experience, how do you come to teach kids that there's just some pieces of the equation that won't be known or certain or solid?
1: Honestly, I think it's less about me teaching kids and more about them teaching me, because they're discovering things in their grief that they come to our grief support groups and share, and they add more elements to my sort of mental equation of what grief can and does end up looking and feeling like. Um, so I think there's an overall sense of talking with kids and teens and adults about how grief can be any number of things. And it's often so much more than what, how it gets stereotyped in books and movies and media. So allowing normalizing that for them, that there's going to be elements of grief that show up that are surprising. And they're think is there something wrong with me? This was not in any of those, you know, movies I've seen my whole life. So to set the stage and give permission for the landscape to include a lot of unusual or unexpected feelings, thoughts, events, but it's less about me teaching them what that's going to include and more about what they bring to the conversation and the discussion because pretty much every group, somebody says something that is a surprise or a new insight for me.
0: That's really beautiful because it takes you from this place of feeling like you have to be the expert to just being the person who's nearby as a resource. Yeah, it it takes you from this level of needing to, to be kind of higher in the hierarchy, to know I can just sit next to you and witness as this is happening. Um, I know you probably get this question a lot because you do work with grieving children, but I'm wondering for listeners of this show who maybe aren't so familiar or who are working uh, alongside kids who are grieving in your own losses, what are some big differences we should look out for between the grief of adults and the grief of children and where where can we really connect with our kids when they're grieving? Yeah, it's such an important question. And
1: I always give the caveat that kids' grief truly isn't that different than adult grief. It's just that adults have been socialized to express their grief perhaps in a lot more limited way. Uh, and if adults take a moment to like have a little more freedom and liberation in their grief, they oftentimes will recognize commonalities with the ways that kids are grieving. I will say one of the like kind of defining lines, if we're going to, if we'll talk about that sort of distinction would be that, you know, really young kids in their cognitive development are not quite in a place where they can fully understand permanence and universality. And by that, I just mean it, they don't quite understand that when people die, they are dead forever. They don't come back and that they don't totally understand yet that everyone will eventually die. So those can be really new concepts for really young kids. And so it requires adults talking to them in really concrete ways and repeating things over and over again until their brains progress to a place where that is a fully formed concept that said I will you know I hear from teens and adults all the time who logically understand that when people die they don't come back but they say every day when I walk in I still expect to see that person or at seven thirty when they used to come home from work I still find myself listening for the sound of their bike pulling into the driveway so we get it but we also still feel and can connect to the way kids are like "Wait, why aren't they coming back are they just on a trip Did they get kidnapped by the FBI? Are they in witness protection? Maybe they can come back one day.
0: For what it's worth, one of the biggest dreams that I entertained, probably for the first two or three years after my mom died, was was that she's on the world's longest vacation. Mm -hmm. I was 21 when she died. So you could reasonably, by all accounts of the law, call me an adult. But I still had this fantastic idea. I'm like, oh, she's just gone without cell service. For a while, like a long while, um, and sometimes still, I'll go home to my house, house in like North Carolina, and I'll expect her to be there, and it's still devastating on some minor level when she's not. And I love. I want to circle back to what you said about uh, repeating things to kids, because I feel like when when adults or parents or guardians are speaking to kids in their lives about grief, and they're being asked to to repeat something or kind of solidify an idea, there's a lot of I'm not sure the word that's coming to me, I feel like insecurity, instability, you're not listening, you're not grasping this, there's almost like a desperation to make kids understand the reality of the world without having to say the hard thing again. Mm-hmm. And so normalizing that sometimes these hard truths that people don't come back once they've died is is really, really powerful that you would say that it's okay to repeat things like that. Yeah, okay. And and likely
1: necessary. And also recognizing the emotional toll that can take on the adults in this child's life, especially if the adult who's their primary caregiver is grieving their own loss. So if it was a child and a parent died, and their other parent was still in a relationship or had a connection with that person, they're dealing with their own grief. So every time they have to repeat it to their child, they're having to repeat it to themselves, and that could be very painful. So giving themselves some permission and some grace and understanding around how hard that can be to do. And some families get kind of creative where they maybe make a little uh, storyline or a storybook. And so if kiddo's like, hey, is daddy coming home this weekend? I'd be like, honey, remember daddy died. Let's go look at our storybook about it. And that way, maybe they're not having to say the words. They can look at these indicators for kids. And then kids can go on their own to get that storybook to have reminders of, of what's happened in their life.
0: Oh, that gives me chills because it takes it from this place of the verbal to the visual. And sometimes for people who are grieving, especially if it was you know loss of a spouse or even for a child, loss of a sibling. So for a parent, loss of a child, to not have to say the words again, but to look at them, it kind of softens that blow. For as much as the blow is coming again and again and again for the rest of your life, you're like, I don't have to say it. We can go look at the storybook. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little bit different delivery. I've never heard that before. I think that's a fantastic tip. And that too kind of speaks to this human and especially this child desire to like have scrapbooks or memoirs or like pieces of here's where I came from to know what my story is. And so to have a physical article of that, whether it's a a framed photo or a shrine or a storybook or a scrapbook that you can pick up off of a shelf, I think that's really cool and important. I've never thought of that before.
1: Yeah. And the other things that come to mind for how kids are grieving in a way that might look different or surprising to the adults, especially adults who've been socialized in a particular way of grief expression is kids are oftentimes going to jump pretty quickly through emotions. And so kind of the classic example is telling a child that someone in their life has died. And it's like, honey, I've got some really sad news. Remember, daddy had that illness and the doctors were trying to fix it, but they weren't able to fix it. And he died. So that means that his body stopped working. And that can take a tremendous amount of emotional wherewithal as an adult to say that to their child. And the child goes, oh, okay, well, can I still have snack today? And that can be kind of devastating for the adult of like expecting maybe tears or raging or something that would be a reflection of maybe how that adult is feeling. And for kids, they're going to be processing this in in small amounts as much as they can. And so a kid might go have snack, they might play with their friends. And then later that night, there might be uh, an emotional expression that looks familiar to us, or it might be a few days and it will come out in small pieces along the way, Um, So that can be surprising for adults and and keeping in mind just our understanding that grief is not something that has a timeline and it's not going to wrap itself up at a particular time. And so being really aware that kids are going to continue to process this death and what it means for them and their identity at every point in their life. So as they grow older, they may revisit the loss in a different way. Um, So you might have a kiddo whose parent dies when they're three and – they've gotten support around that. And then they hit middle school. And there's so much more that's coming up. And that can be worrisome for caregivers of like, did I do something wrong? Did I not offer the right amount of support? And just to know like they've hit a new developmental level, they're renegotiating their identity. And this death is a huge part of that renegotiation.
0: I just got a really interesting visual and I'll hope you um, correct me if I'm if I'm reading this wrong, but I kind of saw this as the difference between a burst pipe and a leaky faucet. So for adults who are finding out the news of a loss, it's like the pipe has burst, the house is flooded, and the rest of your life is figuring out how to live in a house that's flooded. And... Um, for kids, it's like the loss happens, all of a sudden, there's a leak that you can't fix in the faucet and the room slowly filling up with water. And so as you get older, you'll have to figure out how to live in a house that's slowly filling up with water. But the, the impact of it kind of that first direct, holy crap, the ground is gone from underneath my feet feeling may or may not exist in the same way that it does for an adult for whom like my life as I know it is over.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a great way to put that. And, you know, with the the understanding that for some kids, it is a burst pipe, you know, and it might be multiple pipes bursting throughout their life, it's just going to depend on the child. Um, But what's interesting is, especially for younger kids, like an adult, somebody in our life dies, we have this maybe lifetime that we've already spent with them. So we have an understanding of the things that we experienced and will never experience again. And we have maybe a clearer understanding of the trajectory of our life and the things we will not get to experience with them in the future. And we may have a lot more subtlety and nuance in those events. And a small, a younger child, they may have an understanding of some big events. They're like, well, maybe when I graduate from high school, or if I do these things, I see other adults doing like getting married or having children. Those events might pop into their mind of like, what's it going to be like without my sister or my brother, but they may not have that same level of subtlety and nuance. And so they don't They may not even understand what they're going to miss until they miss it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, so true at all ages, but even more vivid as kids when you haven't had the breadth of life experience to really know. Even as an adult, after my mom died, I could already tell I'm like, I'm going to have a meltdown in Target one of these days. (laughs) Like, I just know I'm going to have a meltdown while I'm grocery shopping. Whereas kids, like, they won't have that frame of reference necessarily to draw from. I was thinking about, you know, getting married, buying a house, major moves, graduating from college, like the big milestones. But also, yeah, I know I'm going to have meltdowns at the weirdest, most inexplicable times of day. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to ask a question that's a little bit touchy, because it's related to something that we as grieving people don't have a lot of control over. At least I don't think so. And that's kind of how the media and society tells the story of grieving children. And there's especially in books and movies and TV shows, there's this image of A grieving child as a person who's broken. So like there's always this backstory of this tortured man and oh, his dad died when he was five. Or there's this woman who can't get her life together and oh, her favorite grandmother died when she was 14 or something like that. And there's this storyline that exists of, and this is true for all grievers, but especially when the loss happened for them younger, I'd say 18 or below, that grieving children are somehow broken or defective or can't contribute to society as much as people who quote unquote have lived a normal life and I'm doing heavy heavy air quotes right now (laughs) um and so I'm wondering kind of what you see and what you do if anything to combat that or how we as grieving people can help combat that in larger media and society it's a really really important
1: question And before I kind of get into answering that, I will say on on the other side of that, as I've talked to a number of people who have had both parents die when they were children, and they are hit with a very uh, opposite narrative where uh, apparently in a lot of superhero movies, I'm not very familiar with them. I watch them and I forget the whole plot. Uh, And there can be a lot of around uh, kids in those movies or in those books, in those comic books, both parents have died, and they go on to become amazing heroes. Oh yeah, the myth of the glorified orphan. Exactly. So it's interesting. (laughs) Like, if you have one parent or sibling die, you're doomed for life. If you've had both die, well, you're going to change the world. Like, those are very confusing and very limited. That's the secret. (laughs) Very limiting. (laughs) This is terrible, but that's the secret. And and I didn't. I wasn't aware of that till I talked uh, pretty closely with someone who was a volunteer at the Dougie Center and had both parents die, and how much pressure they felt to do something with their life and to like, transform that pain and to magically become like super productive. And I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. So that's just one little side note about that. Um, This idea of people being broken, and forever damaged, because they've experienced a death at a young age, terribly limiting, and not true. In, and I think about the difference in the specificity of language, it's like, is there a way to share with kids and teens? Yes, you've had someone in your life die. That will continue to affect you for the rest of your life, but it doesn't have to limit or damage you, if that makes sense. And so, you know, the the challenge can be if we move from like, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine, and then kids can feel pressure like, is this not even supposed to be affecting me the rest of my life? Or, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about you, you're going to be wrecked for the rest of your life, which is also... Really limiting in that way. So I wonder about sitting in that place of of letting kids know that it's totally okay that this this death and this loss will continue to be a part of your life narrative, and you're in no way damaged or unable to accomplish and do all the things that you want to do in your life, and to find ways to connect and build relationships that are have a foundation of joy and uh, support and
0: understanding. I kind of lost myself. In thank that. you. Did for, that make sense? <laughs> I no, I was like <laughs> I, I was so I'm so excited by your response because I'm like, yes, thank you for speaking to that. I gave you a really big question. I'm like, solve the issue of the society story. <laughs> and you were like, okay, <laughs> I'll give you another trope and we'll talk about the trope I displayed. I think that's so powerful. And it really leads into the next question I want to ask you, which is how do people who do not have kids kind of access the ability to grieve alongside kids who are grieving because I think we thrust so much responsibility for dealing with grief onto parents as in like this is a household activity, kind of like sex ed. Mm. (laughs) We talk about death, sex, and money only at home. It's not taught in the school system. But I know there are grief growers listening who are teachers, who are, you know, public servants in some fashion. Um, They're just aunts and uncles. They're just alongside children in subcapacity And they're like, I could have this conversation, but I'm not entirely sure where to open the door and or what my responsibility or where my boundaries are as someone who is not the parent of this child. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to a non-parent role in a grieving child's life.
1: Well, I'll start by saying it's really heartening to know that there's lots of people out there, especially in your audience who want to know And are interested and are um, inspired to support grieving kids, even if they aren't parents or aren't parents or caregivers to these particular children who are grieving. Because I think that is what helps with what we were just talking earlier about the narrative of grieving children being broken or damaged, is if there is a community of support, that's going to be so foundational for helping kids figure out a way to integrate this loss in their life and live their life in a way that feels right and good to them. So thank you to everyone out there. You know, at at the Dougie Center, we have over 200 people who are volunteers, and they come and they work directly with the kids and the family uh, alongside the staff people who run the peer support groups. And one of the biggest fears folks have coming into that role is, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent, or I'm not someone who experienced the death of a parent or a sibling when I was a child? Can I do this work? Can I be helpful? Can I be supportive? And the answers are resounding yes, in that you don't have to have the exact same experience to show up and listen without evaluation or judgment. You just have to have a willingness to show up without judgment or evaluation and to listen. And for a lot of the kids who come to the Dougie Center, Being able to talk to people who aren't in their immediate or extended family is so valuable because they get to talk to people who aren't personally affected by the same death. So if they're at home and they want to talk about their sibling who died and their parents are home, that's going to be potentially an emotionally charged conversation. So if a kiddo is wanting to ask questions about their sibling, like, what were they like when they were a kid? And they just want to hear what they were like and the parents might be in a place where they're not feeling like they have the emotional capacity to do that or to do that without also expressing a lot of emotion. Not that there's anything wrong with expressing emotion, but for some kids and teens they may like, "Oh, <laughs> this is like too much." And they really appreciate being able to talk to folks who can be uh, a little bit more removed from the situation and say, oh, you're really wondering what your brother was like. Well, what have you heard from your family or what's a photo of him that you really remember and what kinds of things did he like to do? So we're able to ask kids questions and reflect their emotions without being so personally lit up by that conversation. So I think it actually people are in a really great spot to be able to do that.
0: I love that. It's like um, approaching grief from the back door mm-hmm. instead of from the front door, because it's not its not immediate family. It's not that really, I'm getting like a tender heartstrings connection, but it still has that level of empathy and curiosity that you want anybody who's listening to your grief story to have. So that's a really neat angle to come at it from. It's like there's actually uh, a privilege and a little bit more of... Um, there's like a novelty for kids to talk about grief with somebody who's not also grieving.
1: Or at least not also grieving the same person. I think that yeah, could be a cool, of- Yeah, because
0: at the end of the day, we're all grieving, aren't we? Right.
1: <laughs> so there can be a lot of resonance of like, oh, you you were my age when your parent died, but I didn't know your parent and you didn't know mine. And so we can talk about each other's people without sparking uh, unexpected emotions, or perhaps saying something that it's hard for somebody else to not take personally, just because everything can be so um, elevated when we're grieving in terms of like, we might just be at our max uh, really easily. Um, And so then sometimes people want to like, well, how do I, you know, like, how do I bring it up? How do I talk to kids about it? And I think just being really straightforward about it to say, you know, I heard, I heard about your dad dying I was really sad to hear that news. Um, I didn't get to know your dad, but I'm really glad I get to know you. And if you ever want to talk to me about him and who he was, I would love to hear more about him. So that can be a good opening because oftentimes we say, if you ever want to talk about your grief or if you're having a hard time, let me know. I'll be there for you. And that can be um, that can be a big ask for kids. Say, like, Well,
0: and grief is like an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Right. so like, It's a bit bit up in the clouds. (laughs) Right. Right. But you say my dad died and I'm here if you want to talk about it. It's like, oh, okay, I'm with you now. I know where you are on the map.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest teachings I got from our groups here was when kids and teens would say, you know, it's great because I get to come here and I can talk about my grief, but I really love being able to talk about my person. And a lot of people want to know how I'm doing, but not that many people ask me what I'm missing. And that can be a really like a good way in. And that as you're talking about the person and talking about their memories and the things that they miss, you may also be opening uh, an opportunity for kids to share, I feel really guilty about this, or I feel really regretful about this, or I'm super angry that this happened, uh, rather than going right to the emotions to start.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because emotions are hard to find and pinpoint. I mean, as adults, but then even as kids, when you're like, I'm feeling something, I'm not even entirely sure what this is yet. So, I don't have a name for it. And so, I'll just be quiet. But if you can enter with a memory or a favorite smell or a thing that we did together, you know, when I was this age or that funny road trip that one time, that's a different way to kind of, to geolocate where grief is without actually having to talk about grief. You're, yeah, you're talking about the person. Um I'm I'm wondering kind of going all the way back to the beginning of your loss story with the loss of both of your grandparents, who your community was and who your people were that supported you because you lost them in high school, kind of still at that child going into adulthood age and what was most helpful to you then. Uh, that's a super hard question. I don't remember
1: much about that time. That time of life there was so much happening um I think it was one of those experiences where the whole, you know, the whole family was really affected and because I was 15 and being sort of in that place of being a teenager of being so connected to my peers and starting to be less connected with family, I was pretty disengaged, I think. Um, so I don't really remember needing a lot of support or seeking a lot of support around that, those specific deaths. Um, and I think I've, I've heard other teenagers talk about that where maybe it wasn't so much that their parent died, but if their parents were grieving, like when they get to be older and they're experiencing their own um, more closely connected grief, there can be some guilt or regret of like, how could I have not known how much that was affecting the other adults in my life, which is pretty normal and uh, valid for teenagers, I think, to be a little disconnected in that way. So I don't, I really don't recall seeking out support or needing support that I wasn't getting. I do think it made other large transitions that were happening, like graduating high school, going away to college, a little more fraught. But at the time, I don't think I made any connection between there being this significant loss on our family and the fraught nature of of those transitions, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. I kind of got this visual of like, everybody's standing on rocky ground, but we're not sure why. And <laughs> like, there's something underneath it. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily have a name or a, or a face yet. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that resonates with a lot of what I've read about grief in the teen years, is that if they're, especially if they're not reaching out to parents and family, which is usually not their first go-to, they're finding support from peers or within those kind of same age friendships or even, you know, Teenagers who have mentors or like youth pastors or things like that that are in their twenties, as opposed to going to my parents who are in their, you know, thirties, forties, fifties for grief support, especially if the loss was in the family. So that that really lines up with, you know, a lot of what I've seen, heard, and experienced. But I didn't know if there was anything um, remarkable there for you that kind of drove your getting into working with grieving kids. Which leads me to my next question, which is, how did you get here?
1: Yeah, that, that's my favorite story to answer. This is a much easier question. Thank you. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> I'm trying not to, I, I don't purposely lob hard questions at people. I just ask what comes. But um, but no, I love that this is a, a an easy story to tell.
1: Well, one thing I will say before I move into answering that question is, you know, when we we're talking about Kids and grief and teens, and how to talk with them and how to be supportive. And one of the things I try to hold really front and center is that while grief is a story that kids will carry with them the rest of their life, it is not the only story about them. And for a lot of kids and teens, they um, get frustrated with how after someone in their life dies, people are just seeing them that way. That's the kid whose brother died. That's the teen whose mom died. And everything gets filtered through that from the outside. Now, oftentimes everything will get filtered through that from the inside out, but kids and teens really appreciate people in their life who still see them as having this like full spectrum way of being in the world. And they want to hear about skateboarding and they want to hear about friends and they want to hear about winter formal and they want to hear about sports and recognizing that they can be a kiddo whose parent has died. And they're also a kiddo whose parent has died and they love to go skateboarding or they're really excited about this new band they just found or this new YouTuber they're really interested in. And that's what I think kids are craving a lot of is everything in my life doesn't feel normal. So how can I still be seen as norm quote unquote, normal in the world? So back to your question about how did I get into this work? Totally by accident. I had gone through my uh, master's of social work program with the understanding or thought or goal of doing more traditional outpatient psychotherapy, counseling, therapy. And when I graduated, I was like, I'm terrible at that. No one should let me sit alone in a room with a child or an adult and try to help them with their problems. So i want to do something else. I will do research. That seems fine. It's numbers. They add up. There's like a tangible result. feels really good. So I did that for about a year and was really noticing like, oh, the whole reason I went to graduate school is because I do like being around people and not just numbers so a friend of mine encouraged me to reach out to the Dougie Center and see what was happening with volunteering because they she had seen a presentation from them when we were back in grad school. And she's like, I don't know, there's like teddy bears and pillows and kids crying. I think you'd like it. So, so I was like, okay. So I called them up and managed to like sneak into their next volunteer training. And in the first five minutes of being in the volunteer training, It was the only time in the last two and a half years of graduate school that I heard an approach to working with kids and families that felt like it really fit with how I want to be in the world. So there's so much value to therapy and psychotherapy. And for me, at least in the realms I was working, it, it felt really directive and prescriptive. And I felt like I had no answers at all. So I really loved the Dougie Center's approach to grief is something that's totally natural, totally normal. We're not here to fix it or change it or shape it or influence it. We're really here to acknowledge it and validate it and create an environment and a community where kids and teens can talk about what they need to talk about and do what they need to do and kind of find their own path in their grief. And we're here to just like hold up the ends, hold up the sides for them and make a safe space for them to do that. So, I felt so much relief. I was like, "Oh, this is finally a way that I can work with people um, and still stay in this place I and this orientation I want to have towards doing that work. So thankfully, for me, a job came open about six months after I started volunteering. And I'm still not sure why they hired me, but I'm very grateful <laughs> they did. And uh, I've been there. <laughs> I've been here ever since. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it wasn't with any sort of conscious, connection to my own grief a lot of people do come to this work because of a personal story it wasn't until I was doing this work for a while when I recognized how much grief had influenced and shaped my family based on people who had died before I was even born people who died while I was alive but I couldn't see it because I was in it Uh, and now recognizing yeah just how much of an influence grief really did have uh, on my entire family system
0: growing up I think that's such a neat response to that question because a lot of people feel like they need to do something with grief, like they need to take an action or or pretty it up or make a craft project from it or all these other things that that turn into yeah. chores or errands related to grief. When it sounds like from your experience, you're like, our job was just to look at it and point at it and say, hey, that's real first before anything mm-hmm. else. And I think that's what so many of us in grief our craving is like, wait, 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 before you rush me into, you know, talking to God about it or selling my house or getting rid of their possessions or whatever, can you just acknowledge that it's a real thing that's happening? Um, yeah, absolutely. And we need more spaces like that in the world. And can I
1: look around the room and see this is a real thing happening for a lot of people. Like I'm not the only one with this thing happening. It's real and there's other people sharing in it. That I think is really the power of coming together in a peer support group for kids and teens and adults who are dealing with grief to be like our stories are really different. There's a lot of things that are unique about our grief and there's some commonality and here's like 14 people who for an hour and a half every other week, I don't have to explain everything to <laughs> like they get it on a really like core level and I'm not having to like justify my grief or explain why I feel the way I feel. I can just get a little bit more into the detail of my story because there's this, this shared understanding.
0: Yeah. yeah, That sense of they already get it. So the, you've, you've completed all of your prerequisites just come into the room, just come into the room. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're wrapping up, I want to ask, not even—not like a rapid fire way, but if, if you could have everyone in the world do one thing on behalf of grieving kids, what would you ask them to do? And if you could have everyone in the world stop doing something to our grieving kids or telling them something or, or acting in a certain way around grieving kids, what would you Stop. So I guess behaviors that we'd want to encourage and behaviors that you'd want to stop. Maybe one of each.
1: Mm. Yeah. Nothing like ending with I the know. <laughs> <person> yet, <Shelby. laughs> uh, let's see. Okay. Number one thing to do and number one thing to stop doing. Um, no pressure, but I think. I think if, if there's a, a way for us to shift our general perspective on grief from something that needs to be fixed or changed to something that can be acknowledged and heard and seen, that's going to more easily inform all kinds of behaviors um, and things that we say. Because you can do the same thing and it can land very differently depending on your intention. So that I would give that as like a background Of moving from fix it to acknowledge it, because that can take a lot of the urgency out of some of the questions that we ask kids. So if we say to a kid, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your mom. What was she like? There's going to be a lot more relaxation in that question than in what was your mom like? What do you miss? How are you doing? How are you doing? You know, there's like just a different sensation around those kinds of questions. So I didn't answer your question. Uh, Number one thing (laughs) I would say is to give kids space to answer the questions you're asking them that the answer doesn't have to make you feel better or comfortable, which sounds really prescriptive. Oh, I love Um, that though. You know what I mean though? Like sometimes we ask kids like, aren't you so happy that you had 16 years with your mom? And the only answer to that is, Uh, yes, I'm supposed to say yes, because that's going to make the questioner feel like, oh, good, you're okay. Versus saying, hey, what does 16 years with your mom feel like to you? Does that feel like it was a long time, short time? What does that feel like to you? And letting kids really define that. And then you may have to sit with the discomfort of like, I feel like that was not enough time at all. It was a blink of an eye and I'm super pissed about it and be able to be like, oh, you're super pissed about that. Tell me more about your anger. So I can just stay with the kid in that conversation rather than trying to shape their answer into something that feels more palatable to me. Mm. So that's one thing I would say, which also answers the one thing to not do. (laughs) It's kind of a two-for-one answer in that, you know, when we when we come to kids and teens with things that we think are gonna make them feel better or take away their feelings or dismiss their feelings, usually what we're communicating to them is please stop talking to me about what hurts. So if we say things like, your mom wouldn't want you to be sad, your dad would be so proud of you. Um, Yeah, those are the two things that really come to mind. Uh, Those things can be really hard for kids to hear because it's like, your mom wouldn't want you to be sad and neither do I. So could you please stop showing me your sadness? And let's talk about pressure from the person who died. And, And the one about like your dad would be so proud of you that's going to be really contextual. So if you're somebody who knew that person's dad and can say with some sort of authority, (laughs) I'm like, you know, your dad talked to me a lot about how excited he was to come to your high school graduation. I have a sense that if he was here right now, he would be so proud. That feels a lot different than someone who maybe even never met the person who died to be like, oh, your mom would just be so proud of you right now, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And I've never heard it phrased that way before. And I think that was really powerful, because even in this line of work, I share my story all the time that my mom died when I was 21 years old. And so many people from all around the world, in the nicest possible way, they say your mom would be so proud of you and the work that you're doing. And some part of me has always been a little squicked out by that, but I never know why. Um, Mm. And it makes such a big difference when it comes from my aunts or my dad or my sister or somebody who like knew her in life and knew the things that she thought were cool or would be proud of or be excited about um but I never had words to why that felt weird so thank you for that because that's absolutely kind I'm sitting here I'm like okay that's that's the why that's the (laughs) you know that visual from earlier we're all standing on something rocky but we're not sure why that's kind of what that feeling was Mm. like and now I'm like oh I know what's underneath that now. Is that you didn't yeah, really I think, know her. So I don't know if you should be saying that. Like, thanks, but also. Right. Can uh, I yeah. trust that? I don't know. Yeah. And and um, almost like a righteous in that as like me who knew her. I'm like, who are you to, to tell me what my mother would be proud of? And that's not a very nice right. thing to say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. I, and also, I think a, a way to like kind of get at that with kids and teens is to say, you know, if your mom was here, what do you think she would think about these, about this circumstance? Or, you know, sometimes I'll ask teens like, you know, your friends, if your friends are different than they were when your mom died or your parent died, what would your parent think of the friends you have now? And that and that encourages kids to try to keep that person really present with them. And they may not have an answer for it and be like, Well, I don't really know. I was only three when my mom died. Or they might say, Ooh, my mom would really like Jordan, because Jordan's super funny, but they would not like uh, Melissa, because Melissa makes really bad jokes, or something, you
0: know? <laughs> whatever it might be, and that makes perfect sense. And yeah, it's this slant towards more open-ended questions and curiosities instead of answer this, and you will make me happy with your answer. It's that mm-hmm. performative level of grief that just feels yucky,
1: right? Like there's can, there can be a lot of pressure on kids to help other people feel comfortable, mm-hmm. which you know, and people are not doing that on purpose. No one's coming into the room being like, okay, I'm going to get this kid to help me feel good about, about their grief. That's not like a conscious thought that to like really check in with yourself to say like, what's my intention behind this question? And am I needing something from this child? And if I am, then maybe I need to take a step back and figure out a different way to ask it that gives them more space and permission for whatever's true for them to be true.
0: Oh, I think that's just so gorgeous. And I know we've been talking a lot about the Dougie Center throughout this conversation. So can you tell us like really quick snippet, what the Dougie Center is, if people want to get involved, where they can find it, and then after all of that, where you would like to be found anywhere?
1: So the Dougie Center has been around for um, since 1982. And we were the first program in the country and the world really to start offering peer support groups for kids and teens who'd had someone in their life die. Since that time, Dougie Center has grown dramatically. We now have 550 kids walking through the doors of our program every month. And there are programs similar to ours all around the country and around the world who are offering these peer support groups. So if you go to our website, which is dougy.org, we have a searchable directory and you can find programs that are um, doing peer support programs and also services that are modeled after the Dougie Center. So we primarily work with kids and teens who have had a parent, a sibling, primary caregiver, or a close friend die. But we do also have a program called Pathways, which is for families where someone in the family is living with an advanced serious illness. So it might be a child whose parent has uh, pancreatic cancer, and the whole family gets to come to the Deggie Center. And there's groups for the people with the illness, groups for the primary adult caregiver, and groups for kids and teens. So that's our like our local services. And then nationally and internationally, we do a lot of training and consultation for programs and organizations who are wanting to you know, figure out the best way to show up for people who are grieving in their community. We have a lot of online resources. We have a series of tip sheets. Um, those are tip sheets for adults who are wanting to support kids and teens, tip sheets for teens themselves and for young adults as well. And then the podcast, as you mentioned, Grief Out Loud also has a number of episodes that are really specific for parents and caregivers who are needing some tips and suggestions on how to support
0: the kids in their life. I think that's just a beautiful collection of resources. And I'm like, go since the 1980s, because so many grief <laughs> resources and people we have on the show, are they, they are and they feel so fresh on the scene. But to know that there were some anchors back then and that they've only grown since is really, really cool. And to see conversations about grief for kids, even more in the world, because grief seems to be a very adult, I hate this, right, but industry. Um, Mm. To see conversations happening that are directly for kids that are grieving and to see that growing as well is really, really beautiful.
1: Yeah. And I'm forever grateful to our founder, Bev Chapel because she had the, you know, the inkling that what kids most need in their grief, they need supportive adults, they need supportive communities. What they most need is the support of other grieving kids to be mm. able to be with others who understand what they're going through. And so to make sure that, you know, as we move forward, and there's a lot more resources supporting grieving children, which is fantastic, just making sure we're keeping that balanced with it's not just going to be things that the adults are doing and saying. It's like, how do we keep these kids connected to one another to find that community to decrease that isolation?
0: Yeah, the space makers and the web builders.
1: <laughs> I love it. When you said web, I was like the internet.
0: No, the like spider web. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> Connections, community, also on the internet yep. a little bit. But yes. no, that, that vital in-person connection. Yeah, for all ages, that really reminds us that we're not doing this alone. Jana, thank you so much for coming on Coming Back today. This has been so enlightening. Well, thank you, Shelby,
1: for having me and also for having your show. It's such an amazing resource. And I'm really excited to keep sharing it with the people in our community too.
0: So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Janet Cristofaro for coming on the show to talk about children's grief and how we as adults can help the kids around us grieve and grieve better. If you're looking for more resources on children's grief, visit the Dougie Center's website at Dougie.org, which is in the show notes for you today. There you can find a series of tip sheets and guidebooks for children, teens and their caregivers. You can also check out Janice podcast grief out loud, which has over 120 episodes on grief and loss. It's a great one. I still listen to it. If you'd like to get interactive grief support for just three dollars a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com/shelbyforsavia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief journaling prompts and monthly live calls with me. Thank you this week to Shanna, Lisa, Joy, Yolanda, Melissa. Tammy, Tracy, Rosie, Kim, Katie, and Barbara, who all became Patreon supporters over the holiday season. I am so incredibly grateful for you, your grief stories, and your support. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply Shelby Forsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at Shelby at Shelby As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. There are a lot of books about how grief changes us, but what about how grief changes our friendships? I'm working on a new book right now about how grief impacts our closest, longest, and most intimate relationships with others. If you'd like to share a story about how grief has changed your friendship, made it more awkward, or ended it entirely, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash friends to fill out a submission form. You might just have your story published in my next book, All About Grief and Friendships. Once again, that link is shelbyforsythia.com slash friends with an S. Thank you so very much in advance for allowing me to read, witness, and learn from your stories on grief and friendship.